to the Momnificent Podcast. This is the place where we help parents live a happy, healthy life with their kids. We're going to show you how to connect with your child and help them even in their most difficult moments as we hear from experts in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Jakubowski, an international speaker, public school principal, and former struggling student. The Momnificent Podcast equips parents with science-based strategies to help you live a happy, healthy life with your kids. Welcome. Well, we have Rick Capriola, who is joining us today to talk about addiction. Rick has been a mental health and addictions counselor for over two decades. In 2020, he published a book for parents called The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse, and a workbook. It's not just if your child will be exposed to a substance abuse, it's actually only a matter of when. Rick is here to tell us what every parent needs to know. And Rick, I can't thank you enough for taking the time, your time to join us today. Thank you, Karen. It's a pleasure to be here and congratulations to you on starting this uh, mental health substance. It, uh, it is such an important issue and uh, I think uh, it's one that deserves to have more attention and more discussion. So uh, hopefully uh, the summit will continue to grow as an annual event and we'll be able to uh, help many more people, which is what we're all about. Um, a little bit about my background. Um, I have a long history of working in education. I was a state level school administrator in Illinois for over three decades. Um, and as I transitioned away from that career, I started in mental health, uh, working at a regional mental health crisis center. And where I noticed that a lot of people who came into our crisis center from the emergency rooms had not only a mental health issue that they were struggling with, but also a substance abuse issue. So I returned to the University of Illinois and obtained a degree in what is basically addictions counseling. Continued to work at the crisis center for a while until I was offered a position at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. Menninger Clinic is a large psychiatric hospital that serves both adolescents and adults. And I worked with both, uh, both groups uh, for over a decade, uh, treating uh, uh, teens and adults who have a substance abuse issue as well as a serious mental health issue. And so many times I would sit across from a family and I would go through their child's history of using a substance, what drugs they had been using, how early they had started using and how often they were using. And I would give them a diagnosis of what we now classify as a substance use disorder that can be either mild, moderate or severe. And so many times these parents would look across at me and they would say, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they would say, I sort of thought something was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. And, and these are good parents. These are very good parents doing the best job that they can. They missed the warning signs because nobody told them what to look for. They had no idea of, of what to look for. So after, after I left Menninger, I wrote my book, The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide for Adolescent Substance Abuse. I kept it to about 100 pages because I know parents are busy. They don't have time to read volumes of information. But my hope is that in reading this short book, they will walk away feeling a little less afraid, 
a little more confident and better prepared to deal with this issue if they have to. Sort of the feeling, okay, I've got this. I, I can deal with it if I have to. I'm often asked, what's the difference between adolescent addiction and adult addiction? And I think that there are two very important differences. The first is in brain development. The adult brain is fairly well developed after around age 24, 25. The adolescent brain, on the other hand, is in the process of maturing. It's in the process of developing and therefore is much more vulnerable to, to consequences when uh, substances are introduced. So the brain is one of the big differences. Adults, mature brain, adolescents, developing brain. The other is in consequences. Um, adults who have become addicted often face consequences that can be catastrophic. They might have lost a job. They might have lost a marriage. They might have been incarcerated. These are not small consequences. These are catastrophic consequences that many adults who are addicted face. Adolescents, on the other hand, they face very few consequences. You know, their biggest consequence, their biggest gripe is their parents coming down on them, or maybe they've been restricted or grounded, and, but nowhere near the catastrophic type of consequences that adults who are addicted face. So two big differences, brain development and consequences. Almost all addiction, almost all addiction starts during adolescent years. You know, those years between 12 and 13, up to 16, 17, 18, that is when addiction is most likely to appear in a teenager. Uh, very few people become addicted after the age of, say, 25. Now, some do, but, but almost all addiction has its beginnings in adolescent years. Um, the other thing is we know that 40 to 60% of anyone's vulnerability to become addicted is purely genetics. And that's no different than any other disease. You know, if you have hypertension in your family, if you have diabetes in your family, if you're a woman and there's a history of breast cancer, what does it mean? It means you are more at risk. It doesn't mean you're doomed to get the disease. It just means that you're at higher risk, which means you need to be a little bit more careful. Well, if 40 to 60% of addiction is, uh, in, is, is genetics, what's, what makes up the difference? The difference is environmental factors. Those factors that we all go through, that teenagers go through, that place stress on them, high levels of abuse, you know, uh, being bullied at school, uh, having high uh, levels of depression or anxiety, uh, social interaction. So all of those environmental factors, when added to the, to the genetic factors, can really make a person highly at risk for being captured by, adult, by addiction. So what drugs are kids using today? Well, one in three, one in three high school seniors, seniors report using an illicit drug some type of an illicit drug. About one in, I would say, five, roughly 20% of 10th graders, and one in 10, 10% of eighth graders report using some type of illicit substance. Um, so it continues to be a major problem among our adolescent population. The most popular drugs that kids use, 
and this has been true for a long, long period of time, continues to be alcohol and marijuana. Those are the two primary substances that capture our teenagers. Um, but what we've noticed is prior to the pandemic, prior to the pandemic years, there was an alarming increase in what is known as vaping, where teenagers will use an instrument like a jewel or a vaping pen, has a little atomizer in it, and it turns the substance like nicotine and marijuana into a vapor, and then they inhale it. Very easy to conceal, very easy to use, even at school. Um, and what we noticed was uh, prior to the pandemic, there was an alarming increase in the number of teenagers who had turned to vaping. Um, you know, for example, um, you know, the number of high school seniors that were vaping in just three years went from 21% or 27% to 40 some percent, 41%. And that type of dramatic increase in vaping was seen across all, you know, all age groups, especially um, 10th grade, 11th and, 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 and high school years it was a dramatic increase. Um, so vaping is something that I think every parent needs to be aware of and to understand that uh, up until the pandemic, it had become really uh, a crisis among our teenagers. Um, so why do some teens turn to using substances? I think that's an interesting question, whether it's alcohol or marijuana or some other, some other drugs. Well, for some, it's curiosity. They're just curious. You know, they've heard about this thing called marijuana, uh, you know, and they, they get curious. They, you know, they want to try it out. Um, uh, for some, it's peer pressure. Their friends are doing it and they get pressured. They feel pressured into doing it. And then once they start, if they continue to associate with those kids, uh, they continue to use and often their, their use will, it will increase. Uh, for some, not all, but for some, they turn to using a substance to medicate an underlying psychological issue. Um, it's what I call having an, an intolerable thought an intolerable feeling or an intolerable memory. And kids are no different than, 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 than us as adults. When we have those intolerable thoughts and feelings and memories, we're not likely to just sit with them. We want to get rid of them. We want to do something to get rid of them. And for a lot of kids and adults, uh, the relief is found in a substance. Um, and, and so for some kids, um, they will turn to using a substance to medicate an underlying issue. When I was working at Menninger Clinic, uh, I worked with a lot of teenagers that were smoking a lot of marijuana multiple times a day. And when I asked them to help me understand, well, why are you smoking so much marijuana? The number one answer that came back was it helps me with my anxiety. It helps me, helps me with my anxiety. So for some kids, you know, they might be using a, a, a drug or, or drinking alcohol to medicate that intolerable thought, feeling, or memory. Maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's depression, uh, maybe it's some other issue that they just cannot tolerate. Uh, and unfortunately, those underlying issues often get missed. They get misdiagnosed or they just get missed altogether because the focus centers on the drug use. And we don't drive, dive a little deeper to see, well, why is this child? using a substance because when we do for some of these kids we realize that they're medicating an underlying issue and if that's the case that needs to be treated too 
doesn't do me much good to, to, to treat the child who's using uh, marijuana for anxiety if I also don't help that kid with, with their anxiety issues. I have to treat both. And that's an important thing for parents to know too. If your child is, a, is, is diagnosed with a substance use disorder and an underlying mental health is, issue, you need to get treatment for both. Um, how did the pandemic change teenage substance use? The research that came out showed that during the pandemic year, adolescent substance abuse significantly declined. And I think that was to be expected because what happened during the pandemic? Kids were pulled away from school. Kids were pulled away from their social and their extracurricular activities. They were isolated at home. They were doing online learning. They had turned to social media as a primary way of communicating and staying in touch. So their access and availability to use drugs was affected by the pandemic, and that's reflected in the statistics which show a substantial decline in adolescent substance abuse last year. Uh, and it went down across all drugs, alcohol, marijuana, vaping, they were all affected. Um, but unfortunately, during the pandemic year, while we saw a decline in, in substance abuse, we saw an increase in the mental health crisis for kids. Um, in fact, there was an exponential rise in overdose death rate among teenagers. From 2019 to 2020, teenage overdose uh, deaths increased 94%. And the prior year, 20 to 21, it increased 20%. And a lot of those deaths were due to fentanyl. Um, fentanyl is um, a very powerful opiate. It's about 100 times more powerful than morphine. And about 77%, roughly 77% of those overdose uh, deaths among teenagers were, was due to fentanyl. So. While the substance abuse declined, the mental health crisis increased. Uh, kids were reporting higher levels of anxiety, higher levels of depression, higher levels of stress. They had seen also what their families were going through and the stress that the pandemic was creating on their families. They were reporting across the board, you know, problems with uh, depression, problems with anxiety, problems with sleep. So uh, while the substance abuse declined, I think the mental health crisis uh, became a little bit more intensive. And I think we're just scratching the surface on, on, on the effects that the pandemic has had on teenagers as well as adults um, in, in terms of their mental health. I'm often asked, well, if you suspect your child is using a substance, what's the first thing you should do? And my response is the first thing you should do is have a discussion with your child about what your concerns are and what, what you're observing. Don't lecture them, don't, uh, uh, don't threaten them, don't punish them. You wanna come at it from an inquiring point of view. You know, I'm seeing these things and I'm a little bit concerned. Can you help me understand why I'm seeing these things? You're much more likely to open a discussion that way than you are to threaten the child or to punish the child or to tell the child they can't do something. What you really wanna do is uh, 
try to tap into your child's feelings, uh, express how you're feeling and what you're observing, and invite the child to share with you their response to that, you know, I, I'm noticing these behaviors, can you help me understand, you know, why I'm seeing these things, or I'm concerned that you might be doing this or that, can you help me understand, you know, why I'm seeing these things. Now, that's a discussion that's likely to go one of two ways. It's either going to blow up and the child's going to become angry and defensive and argumentative, or it might go the other way and you learn some things that you didn't know before. Um, but, but regardless of how that discussion goes, um, you want, if you're still concerned, you want to go to the next step, which to get some assessments done so that you can get some professional advice about what's going on. Um, you'll want to get an addictions assessment which is what I was doing. That's going to give you a comprehensive overview of what your child's been doing and, and whether or not it warrants a diagnosis of a substance use disorder. And if it is, is it mild or moderate or severe? And then you'll want a psychological assessment because you want to rule in or rule out if your child is struggling with any of these underlying psychological issues like anxiety or depression or any other issues they might be struggling with that, that, that you might have suspected, but you, you weren't sure. Um, and then you want a good physical exam too to rule out if there's anything physically that might be contributing to what you're seeing. Now, where can parents go to these assessments? I would recommend you start with your school counselor or perhaps your school social worker or your school psychologist. Many of them can do some of these assessments. If not, they can refer you to professionals in the community that can help you. Um, you can turn to your community mental health association. Uh, many of them offer services or can make referrals. And then there's private practice psychologists and social workers that you can turn to. But the bottom line is, if you're concerned, you need to get some professional assessments done. So you as a parent have a better understanding of what's going on, have a diagnosis if it's appropriate, and a treatment plan on what the next steps can be. And when we talk about treatment, there are many options. Every child is different. Every diagnosis is unique. And every treatment plan needs to be unique. There is no one treatment that fits all kids. Uh, depending on the severity of the use, uh, the underlying issues, psychological issues, if they're there, um, will lead to a specific treatment recommendation and a treatment plan. The options involve an outpatient treatment program where your child may be seeing somebody maybe once or twice a week, an intensive outpatient program where your child might be going for several days a week for, for several hours, and then a residential treatment program where your child will actually go to a treatment facility for a period of weeks or months. And typically, I've seen those cases of residential treatment when we have an extreme substance abuse issue, a very serious substance abuse issue, often complicated by a very serious mental health issue. Those are the children that do uh, really well in a residential program where both of the serious disorders, what we call a dual diagnosis or co-occurring disorders, uh, both a substance use disorder and a serious uh, mental health issue can both be treated over a period of time. I want to say briefly a few things about what we call process disorders. Uh, and I write about these in my books. 
process disorders are different than chemical disorders. The chemical disorders are the alcohol and drugs. Process disorders are behavioral in nature. They're things like gambling, sexual addiction, um, and, and in teenagers, what I saw most often was eating disorders and self-injury. And I list warning signs for both of those in my book. But unfortunately, in some teenagers, not all teenagers, but some teenagers, self-injury and eating disorders can accompany a child using a substance abuse, using a substance like marijuana, for example, or alcohol. And in those cases, the self-injury and the eating disorders often become coping skills for the same underlying issue that the child is using marijuana for. So they just come up with another coping skill. Um, if they don't have access to maybe the alcohol or the drugs, they may resort to a self-injury. It's very difficult for parents, by the way, to uncover issues like eating disorders or self-injuries because kids are very clever at being able to fly under the radar and mask those. Uh, kids who are self-injury, for example, uh, will keep their self-injury confined to areas of the body that uh, parents don't often recognize. You know, it's the thighs, it's the stomach, it's the abdomen area. Um, but parents need to be aware that in some cases, uh, eating disorders and self-injury can accompany a child using a substance abuse, using a substance. They can occur without the substance use. Uh, so my, my, my recommendation is just, just be aware of what some of the warning signs are uh, for those. Um, you know, the patients that I dealt with were primarily girls that had uh, either uh, self-injury or eating disorders. I think boys, I think there's more of them out there than what we know that often get un undiagnosed. Um, but most of, the, most of the patients that I had who were had, had either an eating disorder or self-injury uh, were girls, teenage girls. Um, and they were using uh, self-injury, so to speak, um, as an example, uh, as a coping mechanism. So if their anxiety really got very high, uh, they would self-injure. And, and, and a lot of people have difficulty understanding, well, why would somebody self-injure themselves? Doesn't that hurt? Um, and, but when you talk to these kids about their self-injury, they, they don't report that. They report on how they get a sense of relief from whatever is bothering them. You know, the self-injury gives them uh, a, a, a sense of relief. Um, um, so that's just an issue that I think parents need to be aware of. So that's an overview of adolescent substance abuse. Um, I would add two other, two other things that I think are important. Uh, and it really gets to, well, what's driving this issue of adolescent substance abuse? What, what, what's driving it? And there are two issues that drive it. The first is drug availability. These drugs are widely available. And teenagers know it. When we ask them, how easy is it, how easy is it for you to find marijuana? You know, 70% of them tell us it's no big deal. They can find it if they want it. When we ask them, well, okay, how easy is it for you to get alcohol? 90% of high school seniors will tell us, not a problem. You know, no big deal. I can find it. Um, and that's true for other drugs too. These drugs are widely available and kids know that it, they have easy access to them if, if they want it. So availability is one issue. The other issue is teenagers don't see these drugs as very harmful. 
when we ask them, how harmful do you think it is to smoke marijuana on a regular basis? Most of them tell us it's no big deal. You know, it's, it's no big deal. When we ask them, well, uh, how, how harmful do you think it is to drink alcohol like several times a weekend? Again, the answer comes back, no big deal. So when you combine the fact that these drugs are readily available, teens know it, they have easy access to it. And the fact that they don't think a lot of these drugs are very harmful, you've created a perfect storm, a perfect storm where kids can get captured by either alcohol or drugs. Thank you, Rick. Again, always informal and, you know, especially like the eating disorder, self-injury. I just listened really closely to you because I never personally experienced or had difficulty with those, but know people who do. And, and it helps me to understand it because it is out there. And I think it's helpful for parents even to know and hear because if they're like me, we don't think, we don't think about it. And, and yet if it's there, like, then what do you do? Right. Right. So, and, and, like, and like everything else, if you know the warning signs, uh, you're much, much more likely to catch on to it earlier. And the earlier you can, you can catch on to these, whether it's alcohol use or marijuana use or any type of drug use, or if it's a developing eating disorder or self-injury, the sooner you can catch the warning signs and intervene, the much more likely you are to get a handle on this and get the treatment that's needed. And, and I would also say that we know that treatment works, whether it's for substance abuse or eating disorders or, or uh, self-injury, we know that treatment works. So, you know, if you're a parent out there and you're listening to this and you are struggling with a child who's using a substance or you are afraid your child might use a substance, I want you to walk away with a sense of hope, with a sense of knowing that, you know, the earlier you discover it, the earlier you intervene and the earlier you get treatment, your child and your family can get through this and they can recover and they can move on. And when you were working with families, um, if, if, if their child did did attempt suicide. I, I mean, some, some kids are attempting not just one time, two times, even three times. And that creates like a real uh, trauma, traumatic event for the parent. So now the parents dealing with this trauma that for themselves to try to go through, through an experience that how do you, how do you go on? How do you go forward? What do you, how do you just carry on from that? What, what did you see or, or, or what, what would you say to a parent in that situation? Yeah, that's a great question, because uh, so many times parents who are going through uh, these struggles of a child who is using a substance or has, is, is, is attempted suicide, um, they, they walk away, you know, questioning their own parenting. They question, well, what went wrong? What kind of a parent am I? How did I miss these warning signs that were right in front of me? Um, and, 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 and they start to really, really go through a spiral of, of anxiety and depression and, and, and feeling very, very down about themselves as parents. And that brings up the issue that if you're a parent and you're going through this, you need 
you need to have support as well. You need to be involved with some type of support structure. Uh, it's not just your child that's going through this. You're going through it and your family is going through this too. So if you're a parent and you're confronted with a child who is struggling with alcohol or drugs or, or has any type of psychological issue that they're confronting, you need to make sure that you have a good support system around you as well. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a support group. But you will need to have a support system for yourself because this is going to be a journey. This is going to take time. And you deserve to have support as you go through this, just as you're trying to support your child as they're going through it. That's so good. Thank you for that. And uh, it's been interesting because only in the last year have we seen more uh, students around the ages of nine years old that are searching ways to die on the internet or saying, I just want to die. And um, it's it's not like our 11 and 12 year olds, which is what we might've seen like episodically over years. Um, and now I'm seeing it more at a, at a younger age, which, which is, it's just been sad and alarming and calling a parent saying, you know, your child just searched this, like they, they just, they just end up in tears. Like, they're like, why, how they, they, they have no idea, you know? And, and one, one child was like, well, I was just curious, you know? And it's like, oh man, like, well, now what do you do with that? Um, so what would you say to a parent if they got a call that their child said this threat or searched it? Uh, what, what would you, what would you say to them? Well, I would, again, begin with a conversation with the child. Uh, I would want to know, you know, what the child's reason were. I would express that you're concerned and, and try to engage the child in, 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 in working with you as to, um, you know, why they're behaving that way. It's like any other behavior as a parent you might be concerned of. You're curious as to what's behind it. So you want to invite the child to enter into a discussion of, you know, of, of why they're doing what they're doing, express your concerns, you know, I'm noticing these, these issues, or, or I heard about this, can you help me understand what's going on? Um, and, and see if the child is willing to share any information with you. Um, if it's a, if it's your concern over the fact that they're looking at material that they shouldn't be like, you know, how to kill themselves. Um, I, I think you need to get some professional help with that. Um, that is a very serious issue. Um, and, and, and you might want to immediately go to the step of having uh, some type of an assessment or evaluation done on that child, um, either to rule in or rule out whether or not that issue needs to be addressed, but you don't want to ignore it. And does your book address more just like the if your child is dealing with an addiction like a substance, a drug, or or these the process disorders you talk about, or, or or would your book be helpful for a parent who maybe their child has has threatened uh, self harm? Well, certainly the book has a chapter that deals with self-harm. Uh, and, and the point of that is to help parents understand that it often accompanies a child using a substance. But I think the most important 
uh, uh, part of that chapter is the warning signs. Again, it gets back to warning signs. Uh, many parents are caught off guard with a child that has a self-injury issue or an eating disorder or a substance abuse disorder because they didn't know the warning signs. They didn't know what to look for. And, and it can be very tricky for parents because some of these behaviors are just adolescent acting out behaviors. And it's difficult to, to, for a parent to distinguish, well, okay, is this normal? Because I think a lot of parents just want to assume, well, this kid's just acting like a crazy teenager. That might be true because they do act crazy from time to time. Uh, but it also might be an indication that there's something else going on under the surface. And, 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 and we as parents are, are not always professionals in this area. Uh, so we need to rely on others who have expertise in, in sorting out, well, what's just this crazy adolescent behavior and what's a little bit more serious that we need to pay attention to. Um, you know, I often tell parents, pay attention to the changes that you see in your child. You know your child better than anyone. Pay attention to the changes that you see. Don't assume that the changes that you're seeing is just normal adolescent acting out. It might very well be that, but it might also be an indication that there's something else going on underneath the surface. Uh, some examples would be a child whose grades are starting to decline, a child who's getting into disciplinary problems at school, a child who used to participate in extracurricular activities no longer wants to participate, a child who used to openly share with you who their friends were, you, uh, who their friends are. You, you might have even known who some of their family members are now becomes very secretive of who their friends are and becomes very secretive about where they've been. These are all little warning signs that as parents we can pick up on and pay attention to um, and, and see if they are an indication of something more serious going on. But, but again, you know your child, you know their behaviors better than anyone. Pay attention to the changes that you see. Yeah, it's it's just that that simple uh, tool of just awareness, observation, being aware. Awareness. Yeah, being aware. Yes, being aware, paying and, attention. And, and and we get so busy in our lives that that you really just have to stop and observe, and notice, and just yeah, like tune in and and see what you notice, and 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 yeah. and when you stop and do that, you might see more than you realized was happening because of the nature of our busy, busy lives. Yeah. And, and we, you said it right. We need to stop and pay attention because we're all very busy. Parents are very busy. Um, and sometimes uh, it's very easy to miss some things that, that are going on, um, you know, miss some of these warning signs. But if we pay attention, if we're, if we observe, uh, and then if we're curious about things that we see that are a little bit unusual, a little bit out of the ordinary, uh, it might be the first step to catching something before it becomes a real problem. Uh, you know, the, the, the patients that I dealt with, you know, uh, they came into a psychiatric hospital, you know, so the situation had gotten completely out of hand. It had gotten life-threatening. Parents had gotten to the point where they needed to put their child into a hospital. Now, each one of these kids came into the hospital screaming and yelling and angry and trying to bargain themselves out, but out of the out of coming in. But to the credit to the parents, they held firm and they insisted that their child be admitted into the hospital. Um, 
And I saw some remarkable changes. I, these kids would all come in very angry, very upset. Um, and then I would watch as the process worked and they got involved with the treatment, they got involved with groups, they got involved with individual therapy. And within two or three weeks, I saw a tremendous change in, in, in these kids. And, and there's another story where a friend of mine, she's actually a grandmother and her grandson, she found out, uh, tried to take his life and he was in college uh, in, in the South somewhere at a great school, like no one saw it coming, like like completely blindsided, didn't even know he wasn't enjoying school, didn't even know he didn't want to be there, didn't even know he felt like he had to do this thing that, you know, his parents sort of kind of like, as we do, you're going to graduate and go to college and you're going to go to a great college. And you're going to have, you, you need to have a great, a great job. You have to you support yourself one day and all the pressure and weight of that. No one knew that it led him to that breaking point. And now he's home and trying to figure out what, what he wants to do. Like, like what, what, I mean, I'm sure each kid is individual, but is there anything kids shared with you that they want us to say or do like, how does that grandmother act? treat him what do you say you care but you don't want to be like you know crazy and weird about it yeah what I, what about I, that i think i think teenagers as much as they appear to not want it they want their parents to trust them when we ask kids you know what is it that keeps you from sharing things with your with your parents the answer that comes back is, you know, a fear of being judged. Kids fear being judged, especially by their parents. And oftentimes that will keep them from sharing things because they don't want to be judged, especially things that might be embarrassing or things that might be troubling them. You know, they don't want to be judged, especially by their parents. Um, so developing that sense of trust with your with your child, uh, which can begin very early in, in their ages um, or, or even as, as they get into their teenage years, that is a very important aspect to development for your child to instill that sense of trust, to instill that sense that they can turn to you, that they can talk to you about things. One of the things that I recommend to parents is you can learn a skill of how to listen to your child or to listen to anyone, really, because we're very good at listening to each other's words so that when we're talking to our children, we hear their words very, very well. We don't always hear the feelings behind those words. And that's a skill that every parent can learn and every parent can practice so that when we're talking to our child, we're hearing not just their words, we're hearing the feelings and we're reflecting them back. So that if we sense their child is angry or we sense they're depressed or we sense that they're angry, anxious, we can reflect those back, you know, in simple statements like, you know, you sound as if you're very anxious. Can you help me understand why you're feeling that way? And that allows the child to sort of give you feedback as to whether or not what you're seeing and what you're sensing is true or not. But, but it develops a sense of that 
you they really they really begin to feel you understand how they're feeling and when a child begins to believe that you understand their feelings not just their words then they begin to see that you truly understand what's going on that opens up all of the communication and the trust that um, that that child is much more likely to turn to you if they have a question or if they're in a crisis mm, that's so good it opens up that connection Yes, the connection, that trust. The opportunity to really connect with your child, to, for them to be vulnerable enough to take a risk to tell you what's really going on without right. fear of what are you going to say? And I'm not going to say anything because I think I already know what you're going to say. And it shuts them down before they yeah. even get or to that you, point. Or so how good. you react to how you react. Yes. Because if if oh, you react with so anger or you react by punishment, that's going to that's going to communicate one thing to the child. If you react with a sense of curiosity, help me understand why you're feeling this way. Help me understand why you're behaving this way. I'm concerned. You get a completely different response than if you were to say, I don't want you doing this anymore. You can't do this. No, I want to understand why you're doing it. I, I, okay, I know what you, okay, you say you're doing this. Help me understand why you're doing it. I'm curious. I want to know. Help me understand. Yeah. And, and that way the child hopefully begins to understand that you really do care. You really do want to know more about not what they're doing, but why they're doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, one last uh, little story that I am curious as to your feedback on um, a parent said this week that they uh, their uh, fourth grader. So that's like a 10 year old or so said, says I'm having a panic attack. And the mom's like, you're not having a panic attack. And A, don't say that because people will freak out because you're saying that. So is there anything you would say to this parent where they're like, oh my gosh, my kid just keeps thinking that they have to say that they're having a panic attack. What do I do? And how do I even like handle that? Well, don't tell the child they're not having a panic attack <laughs> because that's good. In, in their mind, they believe they're having a panic attack. For, for me to say you're not having a panic attack, probably isn't going to help very much. But again, I want to get back to being curious. I, I want that child to tell me, okay, well, tell me what the feelings are. Tell me what, tell me what that panic attack feels like for you. You know, tell me, you know, what situations tend to cause this panic attack in you. So you want to get a better understanding of why your child is saying that they're having a panic attack and why they're feeling they're having a panic attack. Um, because, Getting that information as a parent is going to be very, very crucial uh, to you having to explain it to a teacher or to a psychologist. Uh, but but you don't want to downplay it. You don't want to say, well, it's not a panic attack. You know, you, you want to begin by getting an understanding of, from the child's point of view, what that feels like and what the, what's causing it. So good. Well, Rick, again, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us all your valuable insights, uh, your years of experience working this area. And um, thanks. Thanks for showing up for us. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey there, it's Karn. I hope that you're enjoying the show. And by the way, if you're a mom who wants to learn how to help your child when they're struggling behaviorally or facing challenges in school, Get started today by getting my free short video course, Three Steps to Happy Healthy Kids at www.educationalimpactacademy.com 
forward slash free video. If you're new here or you haven't done this yet, this is definitely the first step to get started in learning how to have a happy, healthy life with your kids. So head on over to www.educationalimpactacademy.com forward slash free video and grab your free gift today. Well, that's all we've got for this episode of the Momnificent Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be honored if you would subscribe and rate if you really liked it. I know wherever you're listening right now, it might not be the best time to leave a comment, but feel free to leave a question, a review, or a comment at any time. And until next time, remember, don't worry, be happy.